thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can come here freely. Unlike the church that we're about to read, Lord, sometimes we hear things and we become desensitized. We become familiar. We become casual. But Lord, we ask right now, even in this place, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us, as Peter prayed, a divine hunger for Jesus, lover of our souls. Lord, even right now in this place, let there be freedom from distraction, freedom from anything that might rob us from the word and bring us to a place of alignment with the Holy Spirit to receive from the word of God. We pray right now against anything and everything in this room. And we pray, Lord, that you would be exalted and lifted high. Lord, be exalted and lifted high. Let us have a higher view of Christ. Paul said, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. May Christ be upholded. May he be adored. May he be loved by your people. The love that he deserves to be loved with. Let it be received from these hearts. Lord, these are your children. We are your children. We are your sheep. And we're here to eat from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you remember Jesus' birth, and a few years after that, still a babe, there were certain gifts that were given by the Magi, the, the wise men that came from the East. And we, because of our tradition, think there were three of them, but we don't know how many there actually were. It could have been 300, it could have been 30. But there were three specific gifts that were given. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, those are not just random gifts. Those are significant gifts of great expense and value, but there's also symbolic elements to each of those things. With myrrh in specific, myrrh was a substance that came from a thorny tree that would come from the branch, and those who would gather myrrh would leave it to dry, and it would be crystallized. And afterwards, it would be taken and crushed and made into this fine perfume. There was a fragrance to myrrh. But myrrh is frequently associated with death. Myrrh was the anointing oil or perfume that would be used to embalm those that were dead, to give a sense of fragrance even though they are deceased. And so when myrrh was brought to baby Jesus, it was symbolic and prophetic of the fact that he came for one purpose, and that was to die. Myrrh. What's the significance of what we're getting into today? Myrrh is the very same word of the church that is found in this city, Smyrna. Smyrna is the same word as myrrh. And that is no accident concerning the themes that we're going to touch on this morning. Because this church is experiencing much suffering and will experience death. But to Christ, it is a sweet Smell, it is a sweet perfume to him. And that is not some random guess because we see this letter. If you've read it already, you'll notice one significant truth that there is no condemnation, there is no correction associated with this church. He is pleased with what he smells in Smyrna. And so as we read, from verses 8 down, let's ask the Lord 
to open our eyes to what he desires from us. It says here, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of the Lord. We have to understand that as we continue in this series of seeing each church that was represented in Asia Minor, that the introduction that Christ gives of himself to each church is not random. He's not picking two facts about himself from Revelation 1 and presenting it to a random church. There is great significance to what Jesus is saying here. And John is echoing what Jesus has portrayed himself in Revelation chapter 1. He says here, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That was echoed from Revelation 1 when Jesus shows himself to John in absolute glory. John falls as man who was dead. And what happens? Jesus says, I am the what? The first and the last. The one who died and came to life. But there are two words before that declaration that makes all the difference. Two words in Revelation 1. Fear not. Fear not, John. I am the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. And there's something there for us to grasp. That the revelation that Christ is the first and the last and the one who died and came to life should expel all fear from each and every single one of us. When we truly grasp that, there should be no fear residing in your heart. And that is why Jesus is introducing himself this way to this church. Because he wants all fear to be expelled on the foundation of these two truths that he is the first and the last, died and he came to life. First and last. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible or visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he is declaring his, pre his pre-existence and his eternality. That he's always been, that everything started with Christ, and everything will end with Christ. And so we believe as Christians that Jesus is the first. The first thing that ever existed, the first thing that was there before anything else was created, was Jesus. And all the things after that moment where he spoke things into existence, kings and rulers and nations and government officials and government authorities and all these different things will one day come to an end and the only thing that will be left is Christ. The universe and its history is nothing but a narrative authored by God. And this story has a last chapter. And the last chapter is written concerning Christ claiming everything to himself. Jesus one day is coming back and will claim everything to himself. 
People might think that they own things in this world. No, everything is his. And everything will return to Christ. He is the first and he is the last. Now this would have brought much comfort to the church of Smyrna because they were experiencing heavy persecution from the Roman Empire and the Jews. And this church was definitely bullied by the boast of the, these parties and the sovereignty that they claim to have. But what Christ is saying in this one statement is, they might boast in some sovereignty, they might boast in some power, but they will one day crumble at my feet. And for us, Christians, there is no need to fear anything or anyone. There's no need to fear about what's happening in America. There's no need to fear any government. There's no need to fear. It's all going to crumble one day, and everything will be found at the feet of the Son of God. I'm the first and I'm the last. This awesome God makes this statement. But he also says this, who died? Who died? How can this awesome, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God that you claim to say the first and the last die? That doesn't sound like an awesome God to me. That doesn't sound like a strong God to me. That doesn't sound like a powerful God to me. Oh, but you have to understand that this God took on flesh. And 1 Peter 3.18 says that he died in the flesh. A lot of people say, if your God, Jesus, is a God, how could he have died? It's very simple. His body died. His spirit man did not die. His flesh died. And in his death, really, he conquered. Because he came back to life. He came back to life. Why is Christ saying that he was the one who died and came to life? Because he's speaking to a church that's about to experience death themselves. I remember being younger and I was at one of my friend's houses and we were in the backyard in his one tent and he kind of lived in the country and, and so we were there, him and I, we were, we were pretty young and it was dark and you can hear the crickets and he kind of lived by the countryside and we were just having a little sleepover, just hanging out in the backyard. But then we began to hear shuffling and noises and so we had cold chills just come over all of us and we were kind of paralyzed in fear because we thought somebody was in the backyard. And so we just kind of stared at each other and didn't say anything, but we both knew we were thinking the same thing. As soon as we can, let's run towards the door and get out of here. And so within a moment, we simultaneously got up, booked it towards the door. We opened the backyard, ran in, and he went to his father who was dead asleep. It was around midnight or one in the morning and told him, Dad, there's somebody in the backyard. And without hesitation, the father gets up, runs in the backyard, not knowing what, he, what he's going to face, not knowing who he's going to fall upon, and was ready to do whatever he needed to do to conquer. He was a conqueror. I was pretty afraid of his dad jumping out of bed like that. <laughs> and then he examined and he... He surveyed the backyard and he brought out a light and he looked and he said, guys, there's nothing to worry about. Go back to bed. Do your thing again. And just went back to bed himself. And there was this overwhelming peace and hope in both of our hearts, knowing that we can now have our sleepover without any sense of fear. Now that might be a poor example. But Christ, because of what he conquered, because of what he overcame himself, gives his people confidence. We are a confident people because we have a conquering king. And so we 
do not have to fear death because he overcame it already. This is what he's saying here. This is what he's saying to his people. I'm trying to give you a confidence to face something because I faced it myself and overcame it myself. And that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Let me just read this text. But we do not want you to be uninformed in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep. So we, and even in the New Testament, they don't say they died, they say they fell asleep. Even when Stephen went stoned, if you have the ESV, it says he fell asleep. So we as believers, we do not grieve the way the world does when somebody dies. If they are in Christ, because of what Christ has done, when Christ comes back, he's gathering his people. No need to fear. In fact, we should have a hope and we should have confidence. And what Jesus is saying to the church of Smyrna before he tells them what they're about to experience, he says, I'm the one who died and came to life. I went through it and so will you. So not only does he give them a confidence because of who he is, he gives them now confidence because of what he sees. Because of what he sees. Now, let's see verse 9. It says, I know your tribulation. And your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So he says here, I know your tribulation. And this is the same tribulation that all the other churches are experiencing. Roman persecution. This is not the great tribulation, the intensified tribulation that Daniel prophesied. This is the tribulation that is inherited by every Christian. May I remind you of Philippians 1.29 for those who think that suffering is not a part of the Christian walk. Paul says that it has been granted to you for Christ's sake that you should not only believe in him but suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you not only that you believe in him that you also suffer. And so the tribulation you're being experienced is not the great tribulation that we're going to talk about in a few weeks it's just the thing that all christians go through do not be surprised when you go through any type of suffering but specifically in Sperna, there is something added sure there was roman persecution but specifically in Sperna, in that area was heavily practiced roman emperor worship Roman emperor worship. And so what they would do is that they would declare Caesar as Lord. And they would have an altar built for Caesar, a man who claimed to be God. And they would have different festivals for Caesar, but one of them in particular was that people would come and bring a little pinch of incense and offer it on this altar and declare Caesar is Lord. And in response they would give those individuals certificates to approve and to confirm that they do worship Caesar as Lord. But these Christians did not do that. And if you were caught without a certificate, if you were asked to see the certificate and you did not have it, you endangered your life. But even more than that, look what Jesus says, you are experiencing slander. In some translations, the King James says, you are experiencing blasphemy. I hear the blasphemy of the Jews. So there were actual Jews that were living in Smyrna. There was an actual synagogue that was placed in Smyrna. 
But these Jews were intimidated by the Christians. These Jews were witnessing Gentiles and even faithful Jews coming to this sect called Christianity. Believing in this Jesus that claimed to die and raise from the grave. And we know this even from the book of Acts, that the Jews were jealous and they were envious. And so they now began to spread rumors about Christians. And so they heard that these Christians, they eat of the body and drink of the blood of Christ. And so what they did is they went around saying, these Christians, they're cannibals. They eat humans. They eat human flesh. They die, some of them, and they eat of one another. And they also heard that these Christians, they're members of one body, and they are one with Christ. And so they were saying to others, these guys have sexual orgies in their meetings. They are sexually perverse. They are gross in their immorality, sexually speaking. And they also heard that these Christians, they don't worship Greek deities. They don't worship uh, the Roman emperor. So they were atheists. Not only atheists, they were rebels against Rome because they did not worship Caesar as Lord. So all this slander was going around from the Jews. And they even went to the extent of partnering with the Romans to finally eradicate any Christian from Smyrna. Could you imagine the pressure that you were known, if you went to church, if you were a Christian, you were known as a cannibal? You were known as a weirdo when it came to sexuality? You were known as an atheist? You were known as a, a rebel to the government? You faced the daily pressure of those who walked around claiming Caesar as Lord, but for you, Jesus is Lord? And so the Roman persecution and the slander experienced by the Jews, all of that could possibly explain now the next part. He says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. And so Christ now is recognizing something unique about this church. They are poor, dead poor. And it is quite possible to believe that the reason why they were so poor was because of the slander and the persecution. People would break into their homes. We can even go and, and just be and just use our imagination. The same thing that happened with the Christians in the Middle East where they spray painted the doors to say these are where Christians reside. And people would break in and vandalize and rob them. There was little opportunity to work if you were known as a Christian because you were just a weirdo. And so these people were poor. They had nothing in their name. They were scarce in resources. But look what he says. He doesn't just say, I know your poverty. He says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. But you're rich. Those eyes of fire that we studied a couple weeks ago, they don't just see all things, they see things differently. He says, in your economy, you're bankrupt, but in my economy, you're millionaires. And we know this because even in the last church that we're going to discuss, he's talking to a, a church that boasted in their possessions and their riches. He says, yeah, you're rich. You say that you're rich. You say that you have a lot of things, but you're actually, in my eyes, you're poor, naked, despicable. All that Christ would give us his eyes. All that Christ would give us his perspective. 
All that we would see the things that Christ sees, that we would see time the way Christ sees time, that we would see our resources the way we see he sees resources, the way we would see people the way he sees people. This is why we need to get into the word of God every day so that we may be renewed in our thinking and partner and align our perspective the way Christ sees things. He says, you are rich in my eyes. You might wear the same outfit to church every single week. You might be surviving on bread every day, you and your family, but in my eyes, you're rich. Let's just be honest. Let's just stop here for a second. Hold on, let's just pause. If there's one church that we cannot relate to, it's this church. Out of all the churches that we're going to talk about, if there's one church that we cannot relate to, and if there's one church that where our hearts might not say, well, I can agree with that and I can understand that, it's this one right here. Because we are living the exact opposite of what this church is experiencing. Government persecution. Mass rumors and lies where society shuns us. We think that we have a bad here. It's not even close to what they experienced. And poverty. Genuine poverty. The greatest danger to the church is not persecution. It's riches. The greatest danger to the church is not persecution, it's prosperity. You want to ask my diagnosis of why we are the way we are in America? Prosperity. We become comfortable. We've done exactly what Israel has done in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when God says, I'm going to prosper you, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you cattle, I'm going to give you all these things, but here's one thing that I'm asking of you, don't forget me. Why? Because we become dependent on our riches, we become dependent on our resources, we become dependent on the things that we can do in our strength because we have the things to do it. And we end up being like the church of Laodicea, having everything except Christ in the church. The greatest danger to the church is not persecution, it's prosperity. We can do some good with persecution in America, I'll tell you that much. This church... Tribulation, poverty, slander. But look what Jesus says. He says, these Jews, I'm calling them something because he sees them differently. He says, they claim to be Jews, but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Now, physically, ethnically speaking, they were actually Jews. They practiced and they were descendants of Abraham. But in the spiritual sense, they were followers of Satan because they rejected the Messiah. And anybody or anything that rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and as God is associated with Satan. It's just another scheme of the enemy. It might look different, it might sound different, it might have different religious practice, but in the end, it all comes from one source, the enemy, Satan. And Jesus said this in his earthly ministry to the Pharisees in John 8. He says, you ought to love me. You ought to rejoice that I'm here. And he says, well, we only have one father, and even God is our father. And he goes, uh, no, your father, you know who your father is? The devil. And you're doing what your father does best, lie and murder. Paul says the same thing in Romans 2. Listen to this, 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, 
Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. True descendants of those patriarchs that we've been studying every Friday are those who put their faith in Christ. Not outward circumcision, inward circumcision. That is what makes a true Jew, a person of God, one who is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is what makes a true Jew. And so he criticizes them. He says, you're a synagogue of Satan. You're a follower of the father that you think you don't know, but you actually are following. So what does he say here? Because it doesn't end here. It doesn't even end here. And I just trust right now that somehow, someway, by the Spirit, you're actually grasping what this church might be experiencing in the midst of your comfy chairs and air-conditioned house. Really try to grasp what this church might be experiencing going through right now. Because it doesn't even end there. He says this. I don't want you to be afraid. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Oh, come on, Lord. Tribulation and poverty? Slander? And you're adding more suffering on top of it? There's now more added to them? I don't want you to suffer because the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. This comforts us. Why does it comfort us? Because it shows that God is sovereign over suffering. That God is sovereign over our suffering. He's just giving them the inside scoop. He's like, yeah, you know, Satan, he's going to come and take some of you. Satan and God are not on the same par when it comes to power. God is sovereign. And he says, I'm giving you a little insight. The devil, yeah, you know how this works. You've read Job. You've seen what I've done with Peter. He wants to test you. He wants to take you. He wants to destroy your faith. So I'm letting you right now know that it's going to happen to some of you. And God is sovereign over our suffering. And Spurgeon said this, that God's sovereignty is the pillow on which we lie on when we experience trials. That we can rest assured and know that God is sovereign and in total control when his children are experiencing any trial, whether imprisonment or sickness, slander, rejection. He's sovereign. He's in control. He says the devil is about to throw. For what purpose? For what purpose that you may be tested? That you may be tested. Suffering is a sanctifying tool. Suffering is a sanctifying tool. The testing of our faith through trials and tribulations refines our faith and our character. It refines our faith and our character. And the fire of tribulations have a sanctifying effect on the saints. It does something to your character. It does something to your faith towards God. And if we successfully endure suffering on any level, we will prove both to man and to Satan himself that God is worth suffering for. Suffering does so much, whether on an individual level or a corporate level. On an individual level, James says, count it all joy when you suffer. There is no other person that can be joyful in suffering unless he's a follower of Christ. 
Count it all joy that you are suffering. Why? Because suffering is going to produce steadfastness. And steadfastness, if you endure it, will produce perfection and completion in you. It sanctifies you. It matures you. It teaches you something about worship. It teaches you something about how much you actually trust Him. And suffering on a corporate level does a wonderful work. Does a wonderful work. Then when persecution and suffering comes on a mass level, it weans out the lukewarm. It weans out the, the tares. It weans out those that are just in it for the social club. It weans out those that are not in it for real. That's what suffering does on a mass level. We should not feel bad for the persecuted church. Not at all. You read stories about the persecuted church and you realize that every person that comes to the meetings are the real deal. They're in there because they know who Jesus is and they're in there willing to die. It's a lot harder to serve in America than it is China. Oh, how can you say that? Because it's a lot easier discipling sheep than goats. It is. And because of the prosperity and because of all the carnality, because of all the things that we offer in our abundance, people are attracted for the wrong reason. People come for different motives. Who would come here this morning if we were meeting in a cave? Who would come here this morning if at any moment during our worship service they would come in here and shoot the place up? Who would come here this morning knowing that if you were caught with a Bible, they would cut off your hands? Suffering does a sanctifying work to the individual and it does a purifying work to the church. And so I'm coming to allow the enemy to do this that he may, and that you may rather be tested. And he says, you'll be tested for what? 10 days. Now people are like, 10 days, what does that mean? And there's like eight different interpretations. Let's just say it means 10 days. Let's not get super spiritual here. 10 days. I want you to know that you're going to be in jail for 10 days and you will have tribulation. And then he says this, be faithful unto death. I'm calling you to be faithful unto death. Christians, all of us in this place, we are called to be faithful until we die. We do not hold back on our worship, on our service, on everything that we give to him. Not when we get busy, when we get married and things are a little hectic. No. Not when we're busy with school. No. Not when we're busy because so much things are happening. No. When you die. When you and I leave this body, that's when we can take it easy, so to speak. Be faithful unto death. That's the kind of devotion that Christ is looking for. That regardless of what happens in my life, the finality of what I do for Him is when this body is gone. When I leave this body, I'm calling you to be faithful unto death. And here's the reward. And I will give you the crown of life. So not only is enduring suffering and being faithful in the midst of suffering have present consequences, that yes, it does sanctify you, Christian. It does something to your faith. It does something to the way you look at Christ, the way you look at his people, the way you look at yourself. But it has eternal consequences. There's something that happens in the next life that is a result of how you responded in this life. And now some people interpret this and say, well, if you're faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life, and that means... Eternity. That means being crowned is just a picture of being crowned with 
life. And a lot of people adhere to that. But I believe it's an actual crown. To say, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, once again, has that works-based kind of command. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you eternal life. Well, okay, I understand that. But I believe here because of other portions of Scripture that declare different crowns for different behavior, that this is an actual crown given to those who respond to suffering correctly. I will give you the crown of life. I'm going to give you a reward for what you do in this life, especially how you respond to your imprisonment and to persecution. You're going to enter into glory in a different way if you respond correctly. If you're faithful and to the point where they might even kill you and torture you, there's something in it on the other side. There's a crown of life and he's trying to motivate them with this reward. He's trying to motivate them with this imagery. He's trying to motivate them with what it would be like to receive something from him. I remember watching on Facebook President Obama as he was ending his, his term. He was giving his final medals of freedom. And these medals of freedom were given to citizens of the U.S. who have contributed something to this nation. And so he chose 21 people. And I remember just seeing highlights of different people one by one being called up. And he would put this medal around their neck. And, and there was something that was said for each of them before they received that medal. And there was this grand applause. And there was this great, grand cheering. And, and some people responded differently than others. And you look at that and you say, okay, this is a medal given by the president who's not even going to stay as president. And this is for something that they've contributed to the United States of America. Whether it was entertainment, whether it was charity, whether it was whatever. And I couldn't happen to help but think about this. That one day Jesus will reward those who have contributed to the kingdom of God. That one day he will specifically call you and he will specifically address you. And there will be, in a sense, an applause. Who cares about the angels? Who cares about the saints of old? From Christ. Who will crown you for what contribution you and I have made to his kingdom and to the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that not motivate us to remain faithful? Does that not motivate us to endure suffering? Does that not motivate us to say, it doesn't matter what happens in my life. It doesn't matter if God doesn't answer another prayer in my life. I'm remaining faithful unto death. It's all about perspective. Do you notice this letter? He's trying to alter their perception. I want you to see me as one who died in his life. I want you to see that, yes, you are poor, but indeed in my sight you are rich. I want you to understand, yes, you will die, but I am going to reward you. If we just change the way we see things, if we just allow the Word of God to wash over our thinking, and some people think, well, when I read the Bible, nothing happens. Something does happen. Whether you feel it or not, does not matter. By faith, we take hold of the Word of God, and it does something in you. It does something to the way you feel and think, and over time, you will see the fruit of it. The one who meditates on the Word Day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season, that yields, right? And that its leaf does not wither. A tree does not immediately bear fruit once you plant a seed. 
A tree does not immediately produce something. You plant it where it needs to be planted, and as soon as it is planted, give it time, and it will bear the fruit that it needs to bear. Stay in the Word of God. Read it. I don't feel like it. Read it, and let it renew the way you see things and perceive things. And over time, your faithfulness will be rewarded. He's saying here, if you remain faithful unto death, I'm going to give you something in particular. That's not something that you can boast about. It's not something that you can chant about. Oh, this is me. This is what I've done. It's just simply a recognition of the master towards the servant. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So church, this morning, are we hearing what Christ is saying? Now, I know, as I said earlier, this might be very hard for us to relate to because we are not experiencing a fraction of what this church is experiencing. But we can ask ourselves some important questions. Do we see things the way Christ sees things? Now, individually, because the church is made up by individuals, how do we value possessions? Is our faithfulness determined by our circumstances? When we feel like, I'm telling you, there's one thing about this church that I admire. Their, their faith is not on feelings anymore. That is long gone. Feelings have nothing to do with what they're experiencing. Now it's all by faith. It is all by what Christ has said and what Christ has done. How do we measure our faithfulness? How do we measure how we serve Christ based on what we feel? Based on what's happening in the world? Based on what's happening in our lives? He encourages them, yes. But he doesn't leave room for compromise. He says, be faithful unto death. He pushes it even more. He says, I've seen your faithfulness. I've seen what's going on. But go all the way till you breathe your last breath. Go, move forward, move on. Are we ones that are more excited about receiving than giving? Are we ones that if we were to be asked to take the shirts off our back in the moment, would we be willing to do it? This is the church of Smyrna. No condemnation, no accusation. In the eyes of the world, they look despicable. They look pathetic. You might actually feel bad for them. But in the eyes of Christ, even in comparison to the other churches, he's saying, I see it, and I rejoice in what I see. There is this fragrance in Smyrna that is pleasing to me. I want to read one thing to you guys that we have because of church history and some sources over time. There was a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, the very same John who wrote these letters. Polycarp, over time, was ordained by John to be the pastor of the church of Smyrna. And over time, he was there for a long time. It is something that we can take great confidence in that he probably read this letter himself. Not to the church. Maybe he wasn't ordained at this time. But over time, it is probably for certain that he knew what was written to the church of Smyrna. In 156 AD, Polycarp was around 86 years old. And he was a great contribution to the kingdom of God. 
Polycarp was bold. He shooed away heretics because of his knowledge of the word of God. He was persistent. He was a man of God. But under a new Caesar came a new wave of persecution. And they began now to look for those believers that had the most influence on the spread of this sect called Christianity. And one name came to the Romans, and that was Polycarp. Let's get Polycarp down with the atheists. And so the Christians ur urged Polycarp, flee, just run out of here, just go. And he goes, no, nah, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm going to stay where I am. I'm not going to go anywhere. And they eventually urged him, and he decided to go to a secluded place. But because the Romans found two young people, they tortured them to the point where they confessed where Polycarp was. They came to Polycarp. And some sources say even this, that Polycarp, before these Romans came, had a dream that his pillow that he was lying on was lit on fire. And so he woke up and told the disciples that he was with, saying, I must be burned alive. Now when the Roman soldiers came, Polycarp was expecting them because of this vision. And they came in, and this is what Polycarp's response was. I'm so sorry that you had to miss dinner to find me. And so he urged the other disciples to actually make the Roman soldiers that were coming to arrest him dinner. And he looked at the soldiers and says, you don't mind if I pray for an hour, do you? And they said, no, it's, it's fine. Pray. And so Polycarp is there praying and ended up being two hours. And he was praying for the Roman soldiers. He was praying for the disciples. He was praying for the whole situation. He was glorifying Christ. He stopped praying. The soldiers ate, and he says, I'm ready to go. They took him. Even the captain of the soldiers said, listen, old man, you're 86 years old. Just say Caesar is Lord. Pinch the incense, and you can go your way. Polycarp refused. And so they brought Polycarp now before the proconsul and before the stadium filled with bloodthirsty people that found joy in the death of these Christians. And here's the magistrate asking if he is really the Polycarp. And without hesitation, Polycarp says, I am he. And the crowd goes up in an uproar asking for his blood to be shed. And the magistrate looks at him and gives him a second chance. He says, say Caesar is Lord. Repent and say, Caesar is Lord. Denounce your faith, Polycarp. And pinch the incense, just a little incense to him. And we'll let you go. Let me read what is quoted from reliable sources, the exact words that Polycarp responded with. He said this, 86 years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong how can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so the proconsul said, I have wild animals here. I have wild animals ready to chew you up to pieces. You know what Polycarp says? Bring him out. Bring him out. He says, I will throw you to them. You understand that I'm willing to kill you a slow death. Bring him out. Why are you waiting? Literally, bring him out. Why are you waiting? 
And so the proconsul, seeing that he couldn't intimidate Polycarp, says, forget the animals, I'm willing to burn you alive at the stake. And this is what Polycarp says in response. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. 150 AD and the term bring it on was birth. That's not the actual source, but comic relief. And he says, we will nail you to the stake. He says, you don't need to nail me to the stake. I know that the Christ who's given me strength up to this point will give me the strength to endure the fire without me fleeing. Just tie me up. Tie me up. And so Polycarp was put at the stake. And one by one, people, even Jews themselves, came with their own wood and put that wood around him. And they lit him on fire. And this was the miraculous thing. The fire did not burn him. The fire did not burn him. Out of amazement from the crowd and now the magistrate and the proconsul, seeing that this was a miracle, they said, stab him. So they took a spear and they stabbed him on the side. And Polycarp's own blood drenched to the point of quenching the fire was found dead. And Polycarp became, it's funny how Satan tries to use these things to discourage. It was actually one of the flaming torches and catalysts for Christians to endure that wave of persecution and to faithfully meet their end. Why? Because Polycarp had a revelation that is presented in the last portion of the scripture. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And so here's the final thing that we have to adopt as Christians. There is a second death. Who cares what happens in the first one? Sure, they torture you. Sure, they might kill you. Sure, they might burn you. Sure, they might feed you the animals. It's only temporary, and then you are exiting on into eternal glory. Better to die the first death and not experience the second than to die two deaths. We die once. We don't die twice. The non-believer dies twice. But that second death is not a death where you are extinct. It's not annihilation, as some Christians believe. It's an eternal separation from God. And so this is what he's saying to Smyrna. Don't fear death. Don't fear suffering. I see it all. You will be rewarded. Endure it all. Endure it all for my glory and watch how I will reward you. How do we take this in in our American context? It's very difficult. But any persecution that you and I might be facing on any level is recognized by Christ. And if there's one thing that we can take out of this message, though we may not be able to associate, this would do really good for those that are right now in China. This would do really good for those right now that are hiding and have lost family members. This would do really good. But for us, how do we, how do we relate to this text? What can we take out of it? Like Polycarp, like the Christians of Smyrna, if they can remain faithful in those circumstances, how much more we? How much more we? Can we remain faithful? How much more we should not complain at all about what we have as resources, of what we have as opportunity? How much more we? And so we don't want to fast forward too, too much here. But I think this is... Though it's an encouraging text, 
It's a warning for those that are not experiencing this. How so? That we would not be comfortable. That we would not rely on our resources. That we would not take the opportunity in the land of the free for granted. What is Christ looking for in this church in response to us? He's looking for a church that will suffer well and will remain faithful through it all. Last week, we talked about a church that has a first love towards Christ. Now this week, this is another element added to what we're asking God for. A church that will remain faithful through it all. A church that will suffer well. A church that will understand that there is a death that we will all face, but it is nothing compared to the second. Let's pray together. Would you make your prayer this morning that this church and your life would be myrrh unto him? The same way that they would crush myrrh and it would produce a sweet-smelling sacrifice, in the same way if you and I, by the sovereignty of God, are chosen to be crushed, let it be a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto him. And by the way things are looking, it doesn't look like we might be experiencing persecution. Maybe so, we can never determine that. Let's ask God that if we are to experience suffering at any level, that we would be able to endure it faithfully. Father, help us this morning as we've examined what you see in a church concerning their poverty and their persecution. Help us see the same way.